I'm sure you must have heard the saying, pride comes before the fall. Well, what you may not know is that that is actually drawn from a scripture in the book of Proverbs. In verse, in uh, chapter 16, verse 18, it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, I want you to know that on this Pride Sunday, we need to wrestle a little bit with definitions of pride. One, and the most prominent definition of pride, is that pride is a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in varying you know what I mean. Surely you know what I mean. In an article in the New York Times, Caroline Randall Williams writes about her body and blood being a Confederate memorial. This is what she writes. It is an extraordinary truth of my life that I am biologically more than half white. And yet I have no white people in my genealogy and living memory. No voluntary whiteness. Meaning, as she goes on to say, that the white blood that she has came about through the house slaves of the white owner and slave bearer that raped the women that he owned. Her parents, her grandparents, her great-grandparents are all black. And then she goes on to write and say, there is a peculiar model of Southern pride that must now at long last be reckoned with. This is not an ignorant pride, but a defiant it is a pride that says our history is rich, our causes are justified, our ancestors lie beyond reproach. It is a pining for greatness, if you will. A wish again for a certain kind of American memory. A monument unworthy of memory. It's a powerful article, and I lift it up to you. It holds a mirror like a prophet would up to our face. There's another definition of pride, the one we talk about today. The pride that comes from naming and claiming one's worth and one's value. It is the pride that many people who are marginalized by their um, sexual minority status, by their race, by their nationality, by their poverty. It is the pride that comes from acknowledging you are made in the image of God, created by God, named and claimed by God. Today, we celebrate the beginning of the United Church of Christ, formed in 1957, 63 years ago. It was a denomination of firsts. It was the first denomination to ordain African Americans the first to ordain women, the first to ordain an out gay man. It was the first to stand with um, 
the injustices and against the injustices of people who are people of color or people who live in poverty. It was a denomination committed to equality, not perfect, not a perfect denomination, certainly not then and not now, but committed to equality. And, um, and it's not perfect that uh, we, in our study on white privilege uh, this spring, learned that the United Church of Christ has had several resolutions dealing with reparations for black Americans, but we've actually done nothing over a decade's time. So we're not without our own challenges. After all, every church and every denomination is made up of human beings, and we're less than perfect. But I do want to raise for you this idea of pride. And again, I turn to Williams' article. She writes, and here I'm called to say that there is much about the South that is precious to me. I do my best teaching and writing here. Yes, I am proud of every one of my black ancestors who survived slavery. They earned that pride by any decent person's reckoning. That's the kind of pride we're talking about. The pride that comes when people who have been marginalized and oppressed, who at the, are at the margins of society, rise up and name and claim who they are in the image of God. And by the way, that idea is present throughout Scripture, but in the Psalms. We hear the psalmist sing, some take pride in chariots and some in horses, but our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. So our guidance for pride on this Pride Sunday is in the mystery of the one who has named and claimed us and made us in that same image, the one whose name is love. And even if you are not a person of faith or you wonder about your faith, um, it is about the collective of goodwill that exists in our world, in our lives together. It is that kind of pride we celebrate today. This week's reading from Matthew follows immediately on last week's. And last week we heard Jesus call the disciples forward and commission them to go out into the world to preach and to teach and to heal. He told them to take nothing with them. And then we get to this next part where he continues talking. He says, the you know, the one who welcomes you welcomes me, and the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus is asking that the disciples think of themselves as intimately participating in him and the one who sent him, so much so that their identities become mingled. The one who welcomes me, welcomes you, welcomes me. The one who welcomes the prophet, the one who welcomes, is the one who welcomes the one who sent him. Could there be a more perfect scripture for this Sunday, for the United Church of Christ, or for Pride Sunday? There couldn't be. In the midst of the struggles we are confronting right now in our nation, with systemic poverty and racism and so many other challenges, it is a perfect scripture. It is one we need to remember. I remind you that it was the United Church of Christ, it was the descendants of the Congregationalists who raised money to 
to defend the slaves who had come off the slave ship, the Amistad, and won that defense so that those good people could return to their homeland. It was the UCC who adjourned the General Synod that they were meeting in and sent delegates to march with Cesar Chavez for the rights of farm workers. And it was the United Church of Christ in recent history that boycotted the Young Corporation, famously known as the corporation that supports Taco Bell, and boycotted because they were not paying a living wage to the tomato workers, the tomato pickers, in Immokalee, Florida. I could go on. The list is long. And on this Pride Sunday, we remember that we are called to welcome all people and embrace all humanity in all our rainbow diversity. We are to work for the equality of all people, not just ourselves. This Pride Sunday, when we celebrate that the United States Supreme Court has finally, finally acknowledged that all queer people are protected from discrimination in the workplace. But here's the challenge. Jesus tells those disciples that the one who would welcome them would welcome him and the one who sent and was made manifest in him. And I, it could not have escaped then that, that they that by implication, they were to be that kind of welcoming people. It was certainly challenging that they were to be that kind of presence in the world, people who extravagantly and extraordinarily welcomed the most marginalized of their society. Could there be a greater challenge? Well, as a matter of fact, there could. Jesus doesn't stop there with the welcoming. It's not like, you know, he said, oh, just be welcoming. Say that you'll think of them and pray for them. No. Jesus says that whoever gives a cup of cold water to the least of these, to the child, is worthy of God's redeeming. So it's not just we welcome, but there is action and activity associated and activism associated with this challenge that Jesus gives to them. And yet, there is a further challenge beyond that, and it lands square in our laps today. There is no doubt that we are also called to be radically welcoming, extraordinarily welcoming. It is no doubt that we are called to take action and give, in a metaphorical sense, a cup of cold water to those most in need. That the body of Christ is to care for those who thirst, both physically and spiritually. No doubt. But more than that, we are asked for something even greater. I don't know about you, but I don't really think of myself as someone who needs to be welcomed so much as I think of myself as someone who does the welcome. But I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about here. I don't think that's what he was talking about to the disciples, and I certainly don't think that's what he was talking to us about. You see, I don't think Jesus imagined that any of his disciples would ever be at the center of society. Rather, they would not 
be so much extending hospitality to others as they would have to be able to receive that hospitality. They are holding this great treasure, and yet they needed to be welcomed. They needed a cup of water. They needed a square meal. They needed a roof over their heads. And if Jesus' words make you uncomfortable, welcome to the club. Jesus' words make us realize that we have a privilege even his early disciples didn't have. We have power. The power to welcome others or to turn our backs. Maybe Jesus never meant for us to be so powerful. Maybe Jesus meant for us to be the ones who needed welcome and water. Maybe from a place of vulnerability, we could be better witnesses to the power of God's work in the world. I'm coming to believe that Jesus never meant us. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm coming to believe that Jesus never meant for some of us to hold all the cards. That we were asked to hold one card. That we are to go out without power. We are to heal. We are to repair the injustices. We are to offer the words that cut and cure just like Jesus. Which leads to the question, if we are not in the position of having all the goods, of being able to welcome people, who are we? If we are not in the position of power, if we are not the wealthy in the center, where everyone looks for their understanding and meaning, who exactly are we? Those early disciples must have been overwhelmed by the commission that they received to be extraordinary and extravagantly welcoming, to carry within themselves the very presence of the living Christ, the one, the God who sent and was made manifest in Jesus, how could they possibly be that kind of person except for this? Those disciples knew Jesus. And when they were sent out by him, they knew that Jesus had them. Jesus had their backs. Jesus had their lives. Jesus had shown them the way. And we, who are in such a different place, how can we possibly be the people Jesus would have us be? Well, the church has a word for that. The Bible has a word for that. It's called agape, which means sacrificial love. And that is what this welcome, the one who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me, actually means that you're going to have to let yourself be welcomed. You're going to have to trade your place of power. And, and, and so what does that mean? Well, it means wearing a mask so that others may be safe and healthy. It means staying home and being intentional about keeping social distance so that others have a chance of a healthy life and a chance to survive. That little sacrifice, that little sacrifice is what we're asked to do, and in fact more. So I'm beginning to believe that our current sense of dislocation is exactly what we needed. Oh, it's not that we shouldn't grieve the deaths of those who have died 
or those who have lost their jobs and work to restore them. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't rightly protest in the streets for justice. We should, even at risks. But perhaps we're in the midst of a new reality. In the midst of a rising risk of the coronavirus pandemic, the midst of the economic crisis, and in the midst of all the ugliness that all of this has uncovered about our systemic racism, who are we to be? What are we to do? Exactly, except for the fact that the one who was made manifest in Jesus is manifesting you and me. Jesus has your back. Jesus is with you in life and in death and in life beyond death. When I first became part of the United Church of Christ, I attended the 1999 General Synod in Providence, Rhode Island. I was newly out. I was a newly out gay person, and I had just been elected to a church that welcomed me, and so I went to the General Synod, and for the first time I stood among people who thought I was fine exactly the way I had been created, exactly for who I loved. Not rejected for who I loved, but loved for who I loved. It was amazing, and, and while I was there, I, I was thrust into a, a, a protest. It wasn't a protest, it was an awareness thing where they put a banner in my hands that said, the body of Christ is still living with AIDS, and the president Reverend Paul Sherry passed me and gave me a thumbs up. Can you imagine the president of the denomination? And then I sat down next to a very elderly woman who I'm sure dwells in the church triumphant today, who I was worried might think, now might not like all the queers at the General Synod. And yet she began to talk about me as her church and how proud she was of it. Proud, did you hear that? She was proud because they were among the first in the nation to adopt an open and affirming position. In 1999, we voted to shrink our leadership from 13 different instrumentalities or organizational parts of our denomination to four covenant ministries. You know what had to happen for that to happen? To even come to the floor of the General Synod? All the people in those 13 instrumentalities had to vote themselves out of a job for the betterment of the denomination. which they did. In 2009, we entered the General Senate to vote on a new unified governance that did another thing. It took those four instrumentalities and moved the leadership of the denomination into one governing body. And all our siblings, who were people of color and who were poor and who were marginalized, really were anxious about this. And the same thing happened. Those four covenant ministries had to vote themselves out of the job in order to make the one unified governance. And, the, and, and here's the thing. Our denomination remains a predominantly white denomination. But when we made the unified governance, we voted that and identified that people of color, of different backgrounds, people who are black, Latinx, Asian American, Pacific Islanders, and Native Americans were insured places at the table. That there was an equal, equalizing. This is who we are. 
And this is who we are a part of. And so I ask, what now? What now that gay people can marry? What now that we can be protected in our job? What now that the body of Christ is still living with AIDS? What now? Well, think on this. What does it mean to you that the one whose name is love has poured love into you? What would it mean for us to faithfully follow the one whose name is love? Maybe we join with those early disciples and with our ancestors who formed the UCC and with those wonderfully black drag queens and queers at the Stonewall Inn. We rise up, as in the play Hamilton, that we rise up, that we rise up for justice, that we rise up for peace, that we rise up in the name of love. You know, some take pride in chariots and horses, but our pride, 